0: Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 26 and the fascinating world of Anna MacDonald. London-based exiled Scott Anna worked as a doctor for several years, mainly in A&E departments, before leaving to focus on her big passion for performing music. Then, on a visit to Iraq, where bizarrely she had been invited to perform at a Cayley She had an idea that led her and colleague Alison Frazier to establish a charity called Play for Progress. Play for Progress helps children and young people who have made it to the UK as single refugees without family or support. They're given the opportunity to immerse themselves in music, learn instruments and learn to compose. It's a wonderful outlet for children who in many cases have been through highly traumatic experiences and can sometimes struggle to express themselves. But that's not all. Together with uh, another compatriot, Ainsley Hamill, Anna has set up an organisation called the Association of Exiled Scots, connecting Scots all over the world in a celebration of music, language and culture. I met Anna on a beautiful, sunny September day in London's Caledonian Club. Anna MacDonald, it's great to meet you. We have got various aspects of your career that we'd like to cover. Um, but rather than going right back to the beginning of your, your life in Glasgow, let's start by going back not very fast to 2014, when you ended up visiting an orphanage in Erbil, which is in Iraq. So could you tell us how you ended up going there in the first place and the impact that it's had subsequently on your career?
0: Yes. So I was in Erbil to do a Burns Night which is quite random. There's a big expat community out there and they were so welcoming and, and really delighted to have us there. And the event, the Burns Night, was for um, the orphanage. It was to raise funds for the orphanage. And we asked if we could visit the orphanage and arrive to this quite new build um, with a whole lot of kids who were not doing anything and were extremely traumatised, clearly extremely traumatised. So we... You know, as a group left, um, and actually went we ended up coming back for quite a few years. Um, for, the, for a couple of years, certainly after two thousand and fourteen, we went back to Ireland and did something similar. Um, but I came back uh, really moved by what I'd seen and thinking there was there was more I could do about it. That there was stuff that could be done about this. Um, that was a real moment for me of thinking. You know, I don't have any money. I don't have any power. I don't have any influence. But I have a skill set that I can apply in some shape or form. I just need to find out how I'm going to do that.
1: So how did you go about figuring how how you could apply those musical skills, in your your case, to to help the children? Yes.
0: So I was quite lucky in that sense because I was coming from a a medical background, um, but also at the same time I was doing a lot of music. So um, I was really beginning, and only just beginning at that stage, to see um, how those things could fit together and also start to think more about the creative therapies, uh, the creative arts in in therapeutic terms, um, which has been a very steep learning curve for me since 2014. As it would happen, when I came back from that, a good friend of mine, um, Alison Fraser, who's a classical flautist, had just come back from Nepal after having been out there with a music charity. So she'd come back from Nepal thinking that she had this skill set that she could use, but neither of us were quite sure how we would then go about it. And... As with all the best ideas, it turned out that there was a deadline for the Deutsche Bank Award for Creative Enterprise two weeks later. So we thought, well, we'll apply and we'll let the fates decide. What so a few, a
1: few late nights then, drinking coffee. A and... few
0: late nights, yes, indeed. And um, and then we won the award and thought, oh dear, <laughs> now we have to do. Um, now we have to do what we were going to,
1: so this we this were going to do So this became Play for Progress we're going to come back and talk about that in, in more depth but it's quite an interesting way to start, now, but that's, let's go way back now to, you grew up in Glasgow originally I did. Um, did you have uh, from the moment you can first remember a huge love and, and talent for music?
0: So I, from the, the my earliest memories are of family Kayleys. my family are from Sky and my folks are now, now back on Sky and uh, as our, as of most of their generation now, um, so my abiding memories are of family parties where everyone would sing. So I've always sung, and everyone in my family has always sung, and, and I love the the um, stories behind folk music and the musicality behind it and the sort of transfer of information. Um, so I think when you when you connect with something so much. it's it's always going to be part of your life and and music and
1: especially singing has always been part of me. It sounds like quite a a lively, happy childhood.
0: Oh, very lively, very happy. I've got two brothers and um, a lot of cousins, so I was um, always in the mix of things and I'm one of the youngest on my dad's side, so always probably quite well looked after as well, I suspect, yes.
1: (laughs) But it, it wasn't music that you initially... Wanted to pursue as a career. It was it was medicine. You went to Dundee I did. to study. So, what was the the interest in in becoming a doctor?
0: It's so interesting um, how how bodies work, how people work, how people interact. What makes people feel better? What makes people physically better? Um, there's so it's such a rich you know deep vein of information and knowledge. And um, I like people. I like talking to people. I like communicating with people. Um, and I think that was a big part of it. I've got quite a medical family as well, so mm. I think if it's something that you know, then that makes it much okay. easier. In fact, of, of my two brothers, my mum and dad are both doctors and my big brother's a doctor. Just my wee oh. brother that's the, the black sheep of the family. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so when you left university, what, what a sort of branch of, of medicine did you... Specialising.
0: So I did my house officer years in the east. I did them in between Edinburgh and Dunfermline. I had a great time. I spent a lot of time in accident and emergency, and that's what I went into um, when after my, my two-year rotational training was, right. was finished.
1: So how, how many years did you spend working in A&E?
0: Quite a few. Um, <sighs> let me think now. Probably about
1: eight so what was that like? Because for, for most people who've ever had to attend A&E as a patient, it seems like a pretty pretty fraught place to be working.
0: a and a funny place because a lot of the people that you're meeting at is one of their worst days. Right. Um, so when that is what you walk into on a daily basis, I mm. think you probably live your life in quite a high state of uh, stress, I think. Um, you're certainly ready for anything at all times I remember that um, one Christmas I was in John Lewis when I was working in A&E and John Lewis had adopted the phone system for their staff because the building, obviously their shops were so big and their phone ringtones were the same ringtone for our recess bleeper at the time and honest to goodness I had to get out of that shop pretty quickly so I think it does affect how you live your life on a day to day Mm -hmm. basis Um, but there's also again there's that sort of human side of any where you know people people do silly things and and um, <laughs> they need a hand and uh, there's,
1: you've got some stories I've got some stories yeah.
0: um, and that's that's the other part of it isn't it is um like providing help in a, in a genuinely non, non-judgmental way and kind of thinking there're for the grace of God.
1: <laughs> Well, my mother worked in a and as well, so um, I, I won't ask you to repeat any of the stories because the ones she tells me are, are absolutely uh, uh, Not for the dinner <laughs>
0: table.
1: Yeah. Uh, you spent quite a few years, obviously, working in that environment. Did there come a point where you just wanted to, to break away and do something completely different? Uh, then I think you moved more to focusing on the music side of things.
0: Well, I was always doing music and it got to the point where I was um, away for quite long periods of time touring and... I personally quite like to go and work in the same places you know the staff, you know the system which means you can be quite useful otherwise if you walk onto a shop floor that you don't know you spend a lot of your time asking questions about where Mm. referrals go and every hospital works differently so I used to go back to these places that I'd worked time and time again and I was being offered jobs there I was being offered permanent positions I was being offered um, training, training positions and I was very resistant to that and I was also quite aware that over the course of time, I was being expected to do more and more, even though I wasn't away doing my training in cardiology when I wasn't in any, or my training in anaesthetics. I was out on the road doing music, <laughs> which is great, but not that useful in certain situations in any. Um, and I think it just got to a point where I realised I was resistant because I, I didn't want to do it. I, you know, right. I'd made a decision okay. and. It was time to, to step back because I, I didn't ever want to do anything
1: not well. Did, uh, looking back, and in, in, in the context of what you're doing now, were there times when you found yourself using your musical skills to so perhaps comfort or reassure people in any, particularly children?
0: So, children in any, no. The only things that help mm. children any, the young ones that yeah. you, you can't chat to, are bubbles and stickers. Pro <laughs> tip: bubbles and stickers. That bit. Um, I think it was much more that music got me out and about and talking to people um, who I wouldn't have met otherwise. And I think that that's a really useful skill for a doctor to have. Um, And it also gives you a greater understanding of where people come from and and what they need from you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there's still quite a the doctor and us situation sometimes. And actually... It really helps to be able to just get rid of that barrier in the middle and say, "Well, you know,
1: let's sure.
0: what what was useful for you to know." Yeah, and because I think that's one of the currently that's one of the big things in medicine. Is some patients genuinely say, "You're the doctor; you make the decision." Right. I don't want to hear it. You make the decision, and some patients are like, "Tell me everything," mm. and it's it's finding out where okay, yeah. where that is. Mm.
1: So uh, then you. Focused on, on music and then increasingly on film as well So were, were you living in London By this point or did that happen later
0: So I spent quite a few years in between Scotland And London, I probably spent three or four With one foot in each um, And I moved down properly I would say About
1: 2014-15
0: Moved almost my stuff right. down. Um, So yeah I was probably in London by the time most of that Was starting to, to happen
1: And and so you were doing things like Going to Iraq to put on Kayleys and
0: stuff. Yeah you know.
1: <laughs> As you do. <laughs>
0: I remember one... Um, Burns Night's incredibly busy. That sort of couple of weeks is always very busy. But I remember once I started in... My first Burns Night was in Iraq, and my last one was in Govan. <laughs> it was just in a, and I'd had one almost every night. I think I had one day when I was travelling I couldn't... I didn't have a gig that I right. and all the other days I had. So how did
1: the Iraq one come about? What was the connection then?
0: Do you know, we just approached and asked if we would um, do some music... Right, an Um I'm not sure there was names passed around, and oh, okay. yeah, we were just yeah. just lucky, I guess.
1: Yeah. So c- coming back to, to where we started, so you then you successfully obtained this this grant, and you decided to set up the charity. So what what was the next stage of that?
0: When we initially set up Play for Progress, we set up to work um, in areas of post conflict. So our thinking was once food, water, medicine, safety has been, um, once those things are secure, then the next thing is kind of community building. How do you you get people talking to each other again? And um, that was how we started out. And we did go back to Iraq and we went and we worked on the Thai-Burma border and we visited some of the refugee camps. But it became apparent quite quickly to us that um, the work that we were doing there was a lot we could be doing in the UK, mm-hmm. and we were getting offers um, of support from people if we were in the UK, and offers of instruments, and, but we didn't have anywhere to store them in the UK. So we spoke to the Refugee Council's children section and initially set up to do one night a week with them, which was a Friday night, and we do um, what we call it, it was our music classes Friday night and. Since then that has grown to we now do a creative therapy group on a Tuesday night which sometimes has visiting guest artists and sometimes is just our therapist. So we have a therapy department, we do one-to-one therapy, we do um, our educational tutoring on a one-to-one basis, we've got an educational department now and um, some of these kids are doing, you know, learning their letters because in their own mm. language they maybe didn't write. Mm. And some of these kids are doing applied sciences within mm. three months of arriving. It's incredible. We also do a recording, arranging, and writing session, or RAW session, which is music production. And that came around because we were feeling that a lot of the kids were bringing their music to us but wanted to give it a contemporary twist or wanted to record something they'd written. So we were incredibly lucky, and a man called Michael Watt, who's one of the co-owners of Ronnie Scott's, sponsors that night for us every single week, just wow. a phenomenally generous mm-hmm. man um, and we also do outings and performances so we perform at the b every year to open Refugee Week, we're here at the South Bank normally around January um, and we do quite a lot of things throughout Refugee
1: Week itself which is in June And, and the children and, and young people that you're helping, am I right in thinking that, that most of them have, are, are on their own?
0: So our our group is specifically unaccompanied refugee mm-hmm. kids, so we quite often get asked about ages, which is one of these um, questions which is quite difficult. So the youngest we've ever seen is 11, and but most of the kids, because they have travelled on their own, tend to cluster around 15, 16, 17. We tend to see pre- predominantly boys because mm. the girls don't get sent. They're very often trafficked, um, so even if they do make it to safety here... Um, the Refugee Council is quite a—it's a great space, but it's quite small and it's mm. quite uh, teenage boy-heavy. So that's not something you know. It'd be difficult for any teenager to walk mm. in, but a teenage girl who's mm. got this background would be very difficult. But we do also work with the girls' group on a Tuesday. You know, as a female-led organisation, that's very important to us. Um, and they come from all over the world, all over the world.
1: So is, is it predominantly from um, you know, Iraq, Syria, <clears throat> Afghanistan, or? Is that...
0: I actually no. There's there's a, there's a fair representation from everywhere. The Syrians tend to have moved on mass, so they've moved mainly in families. Actually, right. Although we do see a lot of Kurds, so that's from Iran, from Iraq, from you know Syria, from Turkey. We do see mm. quite a lot of Kurds. Um, a lot from Africa. A lot of Sudanese kids. Um, Eritrea, mm. all these places um, and you begin to realise how so I'm also the child protection officer for Police Progress and one of the things that we talk about a lot is asking people not to take photographs of the kids and people can sometimes be a wee bit um, annoyed because they think it's um, you know, child protection, health and safety gone mad, but actually for these kids more so than any other kids if their photo gets out they might not be safe in this country and if their photo gets out, somebody at home might not be safe. Mm. So it's quite, a, I mean, it is quite a mm. um, balance to strike.
1: And what sort of positive impacts have you seen on, on some of the uh, children and young people that you've been working with?
0: Yeah, so impact solves one of these quite difficult things in a children's charity um, because we know, that, we know that we're making impact. We have a core group that come back. We've built a huge community. We've got over 300 children on our books who tell their friends about the, us and bring them to, bring them to class. Um, we work on a model of having, a, the, we work on a the therapeutic model that every child should have five adults that, that are emotionally available to that child. So, w- with us, we've got our music tutors, we've got our educational tutors, we've got our therapists, we've got myself and Ali, who is the co founder, and Becky, who's the head of therapy. So, what we're trying to do is create this community to hold these kids. So, things like kids that never used to speak. Are now really happy to speak. Um, we uh, we have kids that are now in education who weren't in education. We have kids who this is the other thing at the other sort of end of the scale. Kids who were studying till four in the morning because they want to make the most of their opportunities, and they've just got no one to tell them enough. Mm. That's actually counterproductive. Who now are working towards the applied science, you know, the applied sciences who are getting GCSEs. So some things are very easily measurable, and some things are we have one kid that used to come and stand in the corner and he did that for weeks weeks and weeks and weeks and now he comes into the circle it's tiny, it is tiny mm. but it's also huge mm. and it's, it's these very different but um, still big leaps of faith that are mm. being made Just, they're quite difficult to um, measure
1: So moments like that must be very rewarding but it must be very hard work as well how, how easy is it to keep the charity funded?
0: Difficult in the current climate, incredibly difficult. Um, we get so we've had in the past arts council funding. We get we've just got a great grant from Children in Need for three years, so that's good. Um, but to keep all these things funded and to keep going and doing what we're doing, I mean, we really need all the all the help we can get. Um, this is not a current climate which is which is sympathetic to what we are doing, which is you know working with the most vulnerable kids within our society currently. And making sure that they have somewhere to go so that if somebody that doesn't have their best intentions at heart comes along, they have somebody else to s- to speak to about it. Because mm. they often don't have anyone in their shared housing looking after them. Often they're not with foster families. They have no adult. And they can't get into education. And suddenly we wonder why you know we've got these kids that are going off the rails and in commas, mm. And all they need is a little bit of guidance. They are, you know, they've... They've travelled here alone. They are so motivated to make the most of the opportunities they have in this country and they will contribute hugely. But as with all kids, they just need a bit of support.
1: Hmm. Well, it's uh, amazing, amazing work that you're doing. um, At the same time, you've also launched another, hopefully, profitable um, (laughs) enterprise, uh, which is a a very neat time with the Scottish Business Network because it's called the Association of Exiled Scots. So how did that come about?
0: Yes, so I had a lovely, um, I've got a lovely story about how this started. I received an email about a couple of years ago now from somebody who said, Hello Anna, I've just moved to London from Scotland. I'm a Gaelic singer. My boyfriend says that we should meet. And I said, Ainsley, that sounds lovely. Let's go for a cup of tea. So we had a cup of tea and we got on like a house on fire. And just as she was leaving, I said, Ainsley, who's your boyfriend? She said, Oh, um you don't know him, he just googled Scottish singers in London and you came up I was like, good job, I'm not an axe murderer <laughs> um, but Ainsley and I are really aware um, that there's so much great Scottish talent in London and there's so much great Scottish talent consistently passing through that um, we realised that we could quite easily um, create an organisation that provides Scottish talent for events, so speakers, we recently had Gordon Reed who's um, the Wimbledon Paralympic tennis champion oh, yeah. speaking um, at uh, Scotland House uh, we did a Burns Night which was, it was called the Deconstructed Burns Night which was received incredibly well and we've got lots and lots of different did you have to Deconstructed? Well this is it, you've got to leave those things to the professionals you see <laughs> <laughs> we've, um, We're doing lots of Cayleys for you know, private functions and whatnot mm. all over the place and we've got a um, uh, a series of in conversation events coming up as well. So, yeah, we're we're really it's been it's such a joy to bring together the creative
1: mm, um, mm.
0: community in Scotland and see what we can put together in terms of a series of events.
1: So, what are your hopes for the two projects? You know, over the next five ten years, what would you like to be able to take them?
0: So the Association of Exile Scots we would like to be the organisation that brings Scottish culture both to people in London but also to events around the world Um, and we think that working with the Scottish Business Network will be incredibly Mm. useful for that We're also starting our music school so we're really really keen to have everybody along, everybody and their sister along to that um, we'll be doing step dancing, sort of traditional singing Gaelic singing, Gaelic language classes um, all of the instruments you'd like and if it's a non-traditional instrument we can still cater for that, it's mm-hmm. not a problem so whilst we're also providing events we want to grow grow the talent so right. and make sure that we're feeding back into that so that we keep, keep our culture strong in London mm-hmm. um, we're really aware that the Welsh have a centre, the Irish have a centre we don't have a centre so this is the start of that it's building the, mm-hmm. from the grassroots up to make sure we've got a solid base to, to carry it forward on um, and for play for progress I think our, our five year plan is um, to consolidate and just add things that are absolutely vital so we need more capacity to give therapy to these kids we need more capacity to give educational lessons to these kids um, our ultimate goal is to have a centre where we can be signposting them to the correct place to go, where they can have a safe place to work, where we would maybe have a cafe that they can get work experience in and we can feed them from, where we would have music and art and dance um, and then we would use this as we would use this as a, a model for um, an alternative way to do education
1: mm-hmm. um, So when you were um, a doctor, did, was there a sort of burning sense of an entrepreneur struggling to get out of view as it now emerged.
0: I think that there were. I think that I was always there. As a child I was always sort of setting up sweetie shops and um, you know, making cakes and selling them and stuff. I think I've always had that um I find it quite exciting. And I think it's one of the best ways to meet people and be inspired and again with the Scottish Business Network I've found that every single time I've come and meet people that I just um I'm so inspired by and I love the atmosphere that's that's created here of just people wanting to help people. I think mm-hmm. it's it's the best um the, the best sort of networking event I've been to in London.
1: And and have there been any sort of striking lessons looking back that you've you've learned um, from what you've been doing with particularly with Play for Progress, but also with the, the Association of exiled Scots?
0: So running Play for Progress has been like being strapped to a rocket every single year. Every single year, Alice and I start, and we think, well, it can't be any busier than last year. Surely, not there can't be more to learn, but surely we won't have a steeper learning curve this year. And every year, it gets more and more vertical. So I don't know if I could pin down one particular example. Um, it really depends on which department you're working in at the moment. For example, this year since January we've been doing a lot of advocacy work and that's been working with Steve Reed, who's the, one of the MPs in Croydon but he also happens to be the shadow um, cabinet minister for children and justice about how these kids are treated. They often have two legal cases going on, so the immigration case and an age dispute case which is brought by the council or the home office and if it's brought by the council then their social worker who's supposed to be the person that is charged with their care is on the opposite side of the courtroom for them. So they can have that going on because they've got an age dispute case they won't get into education because they're not getting into education they're not doing anything which often leads to a deterioration and you know, an already traumatised vulnerable child's mental health and there's in terms of the mental health services um, the NHS is very oversubscribed. The one um, great Service therapeutic service in Croydon has had its books closed for about a year now, and um, so we are ste- we are trying to step into this breach. So, right, as, with everything limited by time and money, time and money.
1: Sure, mm. and and beyond all of this stuff you're doing, you live in East London. Uh, what is uh, what is life like for you down here? What's what's a typical weekend like?
0: It's funny. I think I probably share this with a lot of self-employed people, and certainly a lot of musicians, is that in weekends are working. So we do our Friday night class, our Play for Progress class, and then maybe there'll be a gig on Saturday, um, and then there's often something happening on Sunday. And actually, Saturdays and Sundays are quite good to catch up with all of the stuff that's been happening during the week, because that's the one time you can guarantee you won't get emails from everybody else. Um, so I, I have been told off a lot for working too much at the weekends recently. Um, so my next lot of weekends will be much quieter.
1: <laughs> OK, we're coming to the end of this very interesting interview with, with Anna uh, but before we get there I'm going to ask you five quick questions okay. for you to respond to just like that I'm what really is your favourite place in the world? The Illuskai what's the last gig or concert that you went to?
0: I went to see Congo de Natalia which is a Congolese jazz fusion band
1: wow, well, good answer Thank you. Um, what is, if you have one what is your alternative fantasy career? Um,
0: other, uh... I think something just fused in my brain. I would love to run a retreat somewhere. Ah, hmm, what sort of a retreat? I think maybe for um, artists, musicians, and business people, like somewhere that you can have space, headspace, mm. to do your best thinking, do your most creative thinking.
1: Okay. Um, what did you have for breakfast? Oh, I had a cake for breakfast. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Well, that was very honest of you. And finally, who is your hero?
0: I think, so, my hero, my mum is my hero. Um, She um, was just retired, a neuroanesthetist who went back to work, you know, after having kids. And um, Yeah, I really, the older I get, the more I appreciate the sacrifice that she made and also what it must have taken to get back into work and, and do it as well as she did.
1: And just to round up, I wonder if you have a a message for people listening to the podcast and sort of connected with the Scottish Business Network about any ways in which perhaps they might be able to support both Play for Progress and and the association.
0: Oh, what a lovely thought. Um, With the Association of Exiled Scots, Ainsley Hamill and myself um, are at the meetings. Please do find us or um, get in contact with us via the, the Scottish Business Network for all of your events needs. With Play for Progress... We're always looking for old tech, so that's old phones, old laptops, and we have someone that can clean them and, and um, sort out putting new programmes and things on them. We're also always looking for old but workable um, instruments, so if you have any instruments, that they're always really useful. And, of course, funding, donations, fundraising events, all of these things are incredibly useful and, and help us build that, the capacity to get, so that we can provide more and more services. Anna MacDonald,
1: thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Fraser. Music. It is powerful stuff, as I tried to explain to my parents when, as a moody youth, I was playing Sex Pistols records in my bedroom very loudly. A great story from Anna, and we'll be back again in two weeks. Bye-bye.
0: To find out more about
1: the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.